0: I do hope you have a Bible with you, as it's always useful to have one as we study God's Word together. We come to the end of what's been a year-long study through the Bible's second book, as this morning we're going to work through chapters 35 through 40 together. But let me just read all of chapter 40, all 38 verses. Uh, for us gives you of course a sense of everything that's going to be built in the tabernacle and coming to that climactic moment when God finally has come to rest in his glory uh, upon his people so let's hear now as God speaks to us through his word the lord spoke to moses saying on the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and you shall put in the ark of the testimony You shall screen the ark with the veil and you shall bring the table and arrange it and you shall bring the lampstand and set up its lamps and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door and the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it and you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. And you shall anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the tent, the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water And put on Aaron the holy garments, and you shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also, and put coats on them, and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit to them a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did, and the first month... Of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put its poles and raised up its pillars, and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he took the testimony and put in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. They put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned the fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded Moses. And he put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court, so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask that you would help us this morning to rejoice in your dwelling amongst us and in us through your Son and by your Spirit. Inhabit our hearts even now that you would help us to hear what we must. That we might look to Jesus Christ and find life in His name. And we pray it. In his precious and glorious and mighty name, amen. You may be seated. It was a number of years ago that a few leaders at the church at which I was currently serving, uh, we went to a couple missions conferences. And in God's providence, these missions conferences happened three weeks apart, so relatively close together. And in God's providence, these mission conferences couldn't have been more different. One was in Austin, Texas. Another was in Birmingham, Alabama. One was very large. Another was uh, noticeably smaller. Uh, One had loud concerts. The other had congregational singing. One had long motivational speeches about missions. The other had biblical preaching that belonged to missions. And after both of those conferences took place, we debriefed as... Leaders at the church and uh, try to see and perhaps learn what we must from all of the teaching and all of uh, the fellowship. And at the time, one of our elders uh, captured it well when he tried to distinguish between these two conferences uh, by simply saying, The weight of glory was in one, but not the other. And some of you know, I trust, that the weight of glory makes all the difference. That the weight of glory can make all the difference as God dwells among His church. It's the weight of God's glory that can make houses different from others, families different from others. The weight of God's glory make individuals different from others. And it's a weight of God's glory that finally comes to reside among Israel as the tabernacle is finally finished. And it's a weight of glory that we saw last week in chapter 34, if you were with us, because it was the beginning of Exodus chapter 34 that Moses was hiding in the cleft of the rock according to God's command. And God's glorious name was proclaimed in Moses' presence. And then by the end of the chapter, uh, we were told that God's glorious power and radiance was reflected in Moses' face, that whenever he would commune with God, whenever he would meet with God, he would come down to the people of Israel, and his face was veiled because of that fading glory. And we said last week how the Apostle Paul picked up on that theme. At the end of Exodus 34, Paul picks up on it at the end of 2 Corinthians 3, speaking about the dwelling place of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the new covenant people of God, saying that, and we... All of us with unveiled face are beholding and being transformed into that same to the other. And so, what we want to think about together this morning is what does it mean for God's glory to dwell with his people? How is it that God's glory can dwell with his people? How is it that God's glorious presence with his people makes all. The difference. Now, if you've been with us through our studies in Exodus, you probably know by now that much of this book is occupied with this tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Uh, we've seen in previous weeks and months, there were six chapters, chapters 25 through 30, devoted to specific, detailed instructions about how Moses and the people were to build the tabernacle. And then in our text this morning, we get another six chapters simply dedicated to telling us they built the tabernacle exactly as God said they must. So kids, if you're good with math, you recognize that six plus six equals 12. And in a book of only 40 chapters, 12 of those are all about this tabernacle. And it's precise in its repetition. Students, it's reminding us that biblical priorities often get biblical repetition. Uh, You know that, don't you? That what's important needs repeating. What's vital bears saying again. And so God is telling us once again that the purpose for which he has redeemed Israel is to dwell with them. And finally, at long last, he's going to dwell with his people in our passage today. So I'm just going to walk through it under two simple headings. Really the first. Five and a half chapters. Frankly, almost all six chapters are about building the tabernacle. It's only the final five verses of chapter 40 that we're going to move from building the tabernacle to God's blessing of the tabernacle, but we're not going to spend too much time in those first five and a half chapters as we spent an enormous amount of time in certain ways in previous weeks walking through each one of these items of furniture and priestly garments. But you need to see again, first of all, what it means that Israel is going about building the tabernacle. Glance back to verse 1 and 2 of chapter 35. Now we're told that Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Now if you glance further back, when God was speaking with Moses there on the summit back at chapter 31, that chapter ended with God's instruction related to the Sabbath. Of course, we've seen the Sabbath show up in chapter 16. Uh, We've seen the Sabbath codified into a law and placed on a stone tablet in Exodus 20 and following. Chapter 31 speaks of the Sabbath as the sign of the Mosaic covenant. But then it's after this interlude of chapters 32, 33, and 34, God seemingly picks up right where he left off in chapter 31. Almost as though he seems to be saying, now, as I was saying when your idolatry so rudely interrupted what I was trying to tell Moses. Remember the Sabbath. Again, biblical priorities, get biblical repetition, the Sabbath over and over in this second book of the Bible, reminding us of its central importance to the nation of Israel's life. But surely it's also reminding us as the people are getting ready to go about this great work for the Lord, building the tabernacle, that there's zeal for God's work can't ever outpace their obedience to God's commands. They might wonder, why why can't we build the tabernacle? It'll get there faster. You'll dwell with us sooner if we work all seven days of the week. But he says, no, no, you still only get to work six days and seven. And holy rest and worship before me on the seventh day. And then what you see, really, in the next few chapters, is, is telling us about God's rule among His people and how they're responding to it. I want you to see, first of all, even from these first three verses, that God rules over your time because He's again telling Israel, isn't He, your time belongs to me. Yes, you get to work six days a week and you must work six days a week. But that seventh day is a solemn rest for me. It's, it's my day. It belongs to me that your time is actually my time. But then as the text continues, it tells us God not only rules over time, He also rules over our resources. Because look at verse 4 and 5. Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a generous heart. Let him bring the Lord's contribution. If you just glance through the next three verses, you'll get a sense of everything that was contributed to the Lord's work. You can skip over to verse 20 through 28 of chapter 35. You'll see even a longer list of everything that was given to God's work. Everything necessary for God to dwell with His people, everything necessary for this tabernacle to be built, came from the voluntary, generous offering of God's people. And if you wanted to know just how generous Israel was in this moment, skip over to chapter 36, verse 4 through 6. These craftsmen come to Moses that were in charge of the building of the sanctuary. And they say in verse 5, The people bring much more than is enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. Can you ever imagine a time in which God's people were so generous that God said, stop it. No more. We have enough. You know, in my years of ministry, I've led two different churches through building campaigns and expansions, and we never had to stand up behind a pulpit and say, stop it. No longer are you allowed to give to this project. Surely, I would imagine many of you have never even been in a church where elders or deacons have stood before you and said, stop it. You don't need to give to the work of the Lord anymore. Such is the generosity of Israel in this moment. If you want to get a sense of the generosity, monetarily speaking, glance forward to chapter 38. You'll see in verse 24, really through verse 28, you get these measurements, these shekel weights of everything that they gave to the tabernacle building project. And it's, of course, always difficult to make it precise. But as best we can tell by contemporary standards and uh, weights and all of these things. What they had given to the tabernacle project, according to now our ways of measuring these things, was something like fifty-five to sixty million dollars worth of goods to build God's house. This was going to be a beautiful, royal place, befitting only a king and the king of the universe. So God rules over their time; He, he rules over your resources. But if you glance back to chapter thirty-five and thirty-six, uh, what you'll see is God also rules over our skills skills. Because you see, at the end of chapter 30, we're introduced to these men that we've met before. Bezalel and Oholiab. these men that were given spiritual endowments of skill from God to go about leading the tabernacle project. And it's not just these two men that were working hard. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 36. Bezalel and Oholiab, and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the mind of the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And when you think about God ruling over time, resources, and of course, skills doesn't it remind you to recognize that God continues to build His dwelling place that in the new covenant is found in the church of Jesus Christ through the very same things the faithfulness of God's people with their time with their resources with their skills are you like Israel at this moment so aware of God's forgiveness and grace and promise of His presence that you pour out your time and your resources, and your skills for the good of God's people. And That's what I want you to recognize, is you just need two more encouragements from this tabernacle building work. It's calling us, first of all, isn't it, to give generously. To give generously. Surely, I suppose, by now, even in this brief study, we've said enough about Israel's generosity, how it overflowed. They who had fallen into this gross and heinous idolatry, uh, a sin for which God was ready to consume and annihilate them, but now in His kindness, according to the mediation and intercession of Moses, God is drawing near once again, the people can't help but overflow in generosity to the Lord. Students, you need to recognize this simple proverb, that generosity proves your spirituality. Because it's, it's true that... Many people in the world today don't love Jesus Christ and are generous. We can come up with a long list, I suppose, of well-known philanthropists that don't love the Lord, but they're abundantly generous. But The Bible tells us that it's genuinely impossible for someone to truly love Christ and not be generous towards the work of Christ. You give generously. You also, secondly, obey completely just kind of scan your eyes through these verses. We're, We're told basically, in this long list and detailed way, everything that's been built. So chapter 36 is talking about curtains and pillars in the tabernacle. You look at chapter 37. It's the Ark of the Covenant, the Table of the Presence, the Lampstand, and the Altar of Incense that are constructed. Chapter 38 It's the Altar of the Burnt Offering. It's the Bronze Basin. It's the making of the Courtyard. And in chapter 39, it's all about these priestly garments that we mentioned much more about in in previous weeks, that everything is built. Now what you need to recognize in chapter 39 and 40 in particular is, is God wants us to know And Moses, of course, wants Israel and subsequent generations to know everything was done according to the Lord's command. Because notice just this phrase that's repeated something like 20 times in chapters 39 and 40. You see verse 1 and 2 of chapter 39, or actually just verse 1. uh, They make these woven garments for the priest as the Lord commanded Moses. You see the next paragraph. They make the ephod. Verse 5, as the Lord commanded Moses. And they set the stones where they belong on the ephod. According to verse 7, as the Lord commanded Moses. And they continue making all of these priestly garments. All the way down to verse 21, as the Lord commanded Moses. Even the bells and pomegranates on the bottom of the robe. Verse 26, as the Lord commanded Moses. Kids, you may even recognize as I was reading all of that building of the tabernacle in chapter 40. It was all done, precisely, each part as the Lord commanded Moses. Obedience is altogether important when going about the Lord's work. That's why an old pastoral mentor of mine, we were once having a meal together and I was trying to squeeze as much as I could out of him related to just his years in the ministry and lessons that he would pass along to young pastors such as myself. And along the way, he told me something that stuck with me. He said, Jordan, value faithfulness over novelty. Value obedience over innovation. And that's very true about God's people throughout church history. And insofar as they have walked in obedience and faithfulness, not innovation and novelty, they have tended to stick quite close to the Lord's word and will for their life. But the minute they begin to stray into worldly wisdom that belongs to innovation and novelty, so quick do they tend to fall into other sins. So it's building the tabernacle. Give generously. Obey completely. Glance towards the end of chapter 40. You see in verse 32 and 33, I were told they went into the tent of meeting and washed as the Lord commanded Moses, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Finally, at long last, it has come. Now what you need to recognize is it even uses language in this passage of Moses seeing. The work of the Lord and blessing the work of the Lord. It's using uh, language that's quite like what you would get in Genesis chapter 1 where the Lord saw his creation, blessed it, saying it was good. Which leads to verse 34, notice of chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and filled the tabernacle with the glory of the Lord. We're told even at the beginning of verse 40. I'm sorry, chapter 40, verse 2, that this was on the first day of the first month. That God finally has come to dwell with his people. And that dating is important. That just means it's one year on from the Passover. One year has passed. It's a new start. It's a new beginning. It's a new creation for God's people. They've finally gone about the work of building the tabernacle. Now you want to see as God's glory falls, God blessing of the tabernacle. My wife, Emily, and I dated for, were together for about a, a year before we got married. And the entirety of that time was spent in something of a, a long-distance relationship. Uh, I was living in an apartment here in McKinney, serving at a nearby church. She was finishing her college degree at a university in, in Oklahoma. And, and then, of course, after the marriage, you know, we came back from the honeymoon, and everything was different in that same old apartment. Because Emily was now there with me. And in the same way, everything is different. In this same old camp of Israel. Millions of people gathered around because God's glory has finally come to dwell with his people. And how is it different? Two things. What you want to recognize from the end of this wonderful book. First is God's glory is his people's greatest guide. You see that in verse 36. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. Where God goes, they go. Where God stays, they stay. And of course that's true, isn't it, also in our own life today in Jesus Christ. Where God goes, you should go. Where God goes, you should go and stay. And you might even ask the question, how is it that God guides us? How is it that He is present with us? Of course, He's present with us through His Son, and by His Word, and by His Spirit. That if you ever find yourself in a prolonged season where you're grieving the Spirit with your own sin, if you're wandering away from God's Word, you might be surprised at the degree to which you have no guide in your life. Because God's presence... Is of course with you still if you're truly redeemed, but you have placed that presence at an arm's length from you. Is God's presence your greatest guide, but also is it your greatest joy? Look at the final verse of this great book, verse 38. The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. If you went up to an Israelite at this time and in subsequent centuries, Surely if you said, how do you know God is with you? How do you know the comforts of God's promises? How do you know the joy of God's presence? When they just turn around to wherever they needed to turn and just point at that cloud or point at that fire because that was their assurance, that was their comfort, that God was with him. And I wonder if you've come to Jesus Christ and likewise have that same joy and assurance that you can say, I have that comfort because God is with me. God has even made his home in me because of the work of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says that if you're in here today and you wouldn't call yourself someone that's following Jesus Christ, that you have no true guide in this world that will lead you to a place of eternal rest. You have no experience even of joy and comfort now. As much as you might think you do, certainly if you remain in unrepentance and unbelief, you'll go to a place where there will be no joy, there will be no comfort, there will be no forgiveness and fullness of life. But if you come to Jesus Christ, who is God's dwelling place, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, you will know the greatest guide. You will know the greatest joy as God comes to dwell with His people. I spent a couple of years in my late teenage years living in Florida, playing for two years in a row with 17 other guys from around the country playing soccer together every day, traveling around the world doing it at the same time. And when it came to the end of that two-year season, when we moved on to other things, many moved back home, some went on to college, some went on to play professional soccer, and we had one of those kind of graduation-like gatherings, or we knew after two years of living with each other in a very unique setting that we were moving on to other things and there will be many things that throughout the years we forgot about our time together. Many things perhaps that we would never remember about our time together, but no doubt we could always reminisce and it's always happened in the years since when we've gotten together about many things that belong to our time together. And some of you It always seems to be true with long long books like this. Uh, We'll never get a chance to study the book of Exodus in a week-by-week sermon series again. You're going to forget some things from this wonderful book. You're not going to remember everything that the Lord has taught you along the way in the 40 chapters of Exodus. But as we begin to close, let me make sure you're aware of four final things that I want you to take with you and always be able to reminisce and meditate on. Number one, learn God's name. Learn God's name. There is this rich thread throughout the entire book. It's rightly been called the really the purpose of Exodus that the nations would know God's name. Didn't it begin all the way back in chapter three with this burning bush? Who shall I say has sent me? I am. And all the way even till last week, Moses hiding in the cleft of the rock. Who really is that name? The Lord. The Lord, merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sins, but by no means he will clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers and the children's children down to even the third and fourth generation. This is who God is. Learn that his name belongs to his son, Jesus Christ. Number two, live in grateful holiness. Didn't he say as we spent those specific weeks studying the Ten Commandments, Before he even gave him that first word of the law, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage and slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You'll never grow in holiness if gratitude and thanksgiving isn't increasing as well. Number two, and maybe we'll sit on this a little longer, love God's Redeemer love God's Redeemer. I hope you've seen along the way if you've been with us for these many weeks and months that it's genuinely impossible to understand something of the depth and richness of the work of Jesus Christ if you don't understand the book of Exodus. Why would John the Baptist cry out the first words when he sees Jesus Christ? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you don't know that a Passover lamb and its perfect blood spotless blood must be shed so that the angel of death would pass over. In the same way The spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, His blood must be shed abroad, the mantle of your heart if death is to pass you by. He, of course, is not only the perfect Lamb of God. He is the one through whom God conquers all His and your enemies. He's that daily provision of heavenly bread that belongs to His holy people. He's the lawgiver Himself. He's the one who's kept the law perfectly so that by faith alone you might receive His righteousness. He's the perfect mediator, the only one between God and men. He always lives, Jesus does, to make intercession for his people. That glory of God that Moses saw in some degree of fullness, but yes, only in part there in the cleft of the rock, has been revealed fully in the face of, of Jesus Christ. So the glory comes to dwell in the tabernacle. Fast forward 350 years. The tabernacle is replaced with the temple. Second Chronicles chapter 7, and it says, The glory of the Lord came into the temple. Another 300 years or so go by. And that temple is now getting ready to be destroyed because of God's people's idolatry and iniquity. In Ezekiel chapter 8 and 11, the glory departs from the temple. The temple is sacked. By the time you get to Jesus' time, the temple's been rebuilt, but the glory has actually not returned to that temple. But there was a one night during Passion Week that the glory returned to the temple out the same place from where it left in Ezekiel. As quietly, in a way no one heard, in a way no one saw, Jesus walked right in the glory of God. And then he left because the glory no longer belongs to just this single location. Because now the glory is found in people that are redeemed from every tribe and from every tongue in Jesus Christ because now the world is his dwelling place. Which leads to the final fourth thing you need to see. And you not only to learn God's name and live in grateful holiness and love God's Redeemer. You also look forward, don't you, to your heavenly home. Remember what the Apostle John said that he heard. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself for all eternity will be with them as their God. And he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. God comes to dwell with His people. And God dwells now with His people and gloriously forever with His people through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that Your glory would according to your mercy and kindness, descend upon us in its wonder and its splendor. That we might know you. That we might live for you. That we might love you. That we might obey you and give to you. Father, we do ask that you would never take your glory away from us as you took it away from that temple of old. And we thank you that you have promised to remain in us according to the promise of your one and only beloved Son, that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. And we pray it in his glorious name. Amen.